Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Very excited about today's episode. Our guest is a gentleman named Kevin Green, who is the president of Greenwin. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Before we get into your conversation, I just want to remind our listeners that Adam and I are going to do a after-show digestion of the conversation. So stay tuned once you hear the pretty music. And Kevin, thanks for coming on. I'm very excited about this episode. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to be on the show. You know, Kevin, we always kind of look backwards. I mean, we always kind of talk about how you, your trajectory and career and how you got to where you are today. But in your particular case, the background story, I think is exceptionally fascinating. So maybe just take us back. I mean, just start with how your family got involved in real estate and let's kind of meander through the years about just, you know, where you've evolved and how you ended up where you are today. Well, I mean, it started, you know, our grandfather. Canada, 19, we think around the 1920s, you know, he was persecuted. He left Poland, came to Canada. His brothers sent for him and they were renovators, you know, restorers, renovators. They fixed fences to ovens, to chimneys. That's what he, they did. And, and my dad and my uncle were with them. And that was their start. You know, they were probably in their teens and stuff. And they pretty much did okay. And then my grandfather had a very good friend. And he had a business. They were furniture people and they had a factory. And he was a little bit more, you know, he'd been in the country longer and, and he is a business person. And he would encourage my grandfather to do more work. And, you know, my grandfather was very symbolic of the Polish people, quite stubborn, you know, and he never spoke English. He spoke Yiddish. He was in the, he's in, he spent his life here like 50 years without learning the language. But he was always encouraged to do a little bit more, you know, so it was an addition. And then my grandfather would be like, I can't do an addition. I'm a renovator. I don't know this. And, you know, do an addition, you know, you'll, it, it's, you can do it. You know, if you can build a room, you can make, you know, you can build it. And that was sort of the history of, the progression. And then this person actually then got my grandfather to buy land. And unfortunately, um, he passed away. This was a Joseph Freiburg's father. Joe Freiburg is another First Liberty, another developer, well-known developer, and did a lot of great work in Bonn and around, and quite a very brilliant man. And he, so they bought land. And he, his father passed away in a car accident. And then the Weinstock family came along and bought out the Freiburg interest. And so it became, you know, Weinstock, and green and green wine became Greenwind. And that was sort of the origins of Greenwind coming together. So that was the history. And then it was my dad and my uncle and my grandfather on one side. And then it was the Weinstock family and then a young Albert Latner. And that was sort of the origins. What year would this be now in the chronology? They must have got together in the 50s. That was when it started, you know, and it probably progressed into the 60s where the next generation, my dad, my uncle, and Latner's generation start to really drive it and get into the 60s where you got into apartments really being needed in Canada, you know, in Toronto. And your so your grandfather was, you know, resistant to do extensions and things like that in the, yeah. in the sorry, I guess I'm showing 20s and 30s. At what point did it kind of grow into something else? I mean, you, you talked about, you know, the Weinstock family joining was there ever a tipping point where, hey, we can build full buildings or was it really more a renovation at the time? They were 
I mean, at that point, they were becoming more and more sophisticated. They were buying land and they were learning how to finance, which wasn't easy in those days. You know, again, there was a lot of persecution in those days. It wasn't like they went out and said, Jewish people, here's money. That was sort of close, but they figured out how to raise money. And they started to, you know, get into Don Mills, you know, uh, Don Mills into the master plan community. I was, I think, E.P. Taylor's properties in those days. And they, that was really the first real master plan communities in Canada, Don Mills. And they were very big in there. And then that led to apartments. And they, you know, at that time, the, you know, in the 60s, the city was very, very in, you know, in need of apartments. And there were a lot of incentives and financing in those days. There's all sorts of types of financing vehicles that they had and they built and they were very young and they were, you know, they were big. They land assembled. They walked from Young Street to Mount Pleasant on Erskine and Keewaden. And they did the same thing on Balliol and uh, Davisville. Went from Young Street to Mount Pleasant assembling houses. And that was with my uncle and Eddie Kogan. Eddie Kogan was an incredible rainmaker in those days. He was the guy and my uncle and they, they were buying houses and they created those two areas for apartments. And they did other work with Cadillac at the time. It was before Cadillac merged with Cadillac Fairview. And those were the early days and they really got going. Basically, if you look at the apartment buildings, it was probably one design. <laughs> it was quite very efficient that way. They saved a lot of funds by uh, taking an apartment and basically uh, placing it in a different angle. Which is what? And which uh, is just like a foyer, walk-in, elevator bay. Double-loaded corridors, up. hammerhead ends, and uh, the most efficient building ever, right? It's, it was perfect. <laughs> so if you go through those areas, you'll see that, you know, that architect did not make a lot of money. <laughs> One design. So that was it. That was their run. They really did great. They built Young Eglinton Center. They actually took over a site that was pre-assembled by a couple other developers, and then they built the apartments. Then years later, uh, another, you know, one of their future partners came along with a financier, and they built the towers at Young Lincoln Center. And they built Greenwood <laughs> Square. Yeah. For anybody not from Toronto, this is all, you know, middle of downtown Toronto. You know, very, very nice neighborhoods. And just so we can, you know, make some people cry. Do you have any idea? What's either the value per unit or build cost per unit would have been back? What's your cost basis when you're doing your uh, oh my goodness gracious your IRR calculations? Uh, oh my goodness that? gracious! I would say yeah, they, the cost would have been like three to four thousand per unit, and now the cost they got to be trading around four hundred thousand to four hundred fifty thousand dollars per unit. But I have to figure it's got to be at that price. Uh, I remember years, yeah. Yeah. No, no. Keep going, Kevin. Just keep going. Like I remember now. Like I remember, you know, in, even in the '80s and '90s, you know, when someone said that thing's worth fifty thousand dollars. Are you crazy? What are you nuts? You, you know, like I just remember. So in those days, it, it would have been. It would have been. Yeah, it was pretty inexpensive. Real estate is one of those weird things where it's everyone always says it's expensive, but then in hindsight, it's never expensive somehow. Yeah. So Greenwood had its run, right? And then they really slowed down in '74 when rent control came in. Right. So for many years, so many years, it really sort of they there was so many more buildings that were going to be built at the time with the four. You know, there's about five or six major apartment companies that just stopped everything. They really got out. They, you know, I don't think the banks would finance at that point. But um, so it sort of went that, you know, that's why the apartment industry sort of slapped and the condominium industry exploded. You know, you guys like Marty Atkins and Stan Cates and these guys that were really you know, bringing sizzle into the condo market and there was a great need for housing. But the rental industry went to sleep. You know, really you could count on one hand over a period of 40, 50 years of apartments that were built. So Kevin, give us some scope. Let's. So we talked about the growth 
and acquiring land and development in sort of the Young and Eglinton area. And again, for those that are not in Toronto, that's literally the center of the city. Like you can't get more geographically centered in Toronto. How many units had you built? How many apartments had you built? Like what was the family profile or portfolio look like at that point? Greenman was, um, wow. Yeah, it was probably three, I would say it's probably like 3,000, 3,500 units in the Davisville area. And then the, um, I would say in the Eglinton, you know, the Erskine, Keewatton area, Dunfield area, like I would say probably another three to 4,000 units there. In the so like eight, area. seven or seven or eight total. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, yeah, units. they were, they were busy. You know, I remember Young Eglinton Center was two towers of 500 each, you know, Orchard View and Duplex. They were busy. They really were busy. And how many were sold or was it almost hundred percent retention when you guys would build these things? Well, I mean, they would hold, right? They would hold, they would hold everything, you know, until it sort of split, right? And then, you know, as families grow and split and stuff like that, you know, they went in different directions, the ownership changed and stuff. There were other owners in Greenland. There was, in order to get the financing on things, there was a lot of equity required, but those assets are now held, you know, privately held by probably a lot of the original owners, you know, the original founders of Greenland those families. So the 70s hit and rental controls hit and then enter Kevin Green. How does that, where do, <laughs> when do you start? <laughs> I, uh, I was away at, at school. I went to school in the States. I was more sort of athletically prone than I say academically <laughs> bent. <laughs> uh, but I did graduate. I just want to let you know, I did graduate. Uh, from Congratulations. Well done. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I came back and, you know, it was, I guess it was like eight, the 80s, 83, 84, when I was, he came home and stuff. And, you know, and we were at that point, you know, we were, we did the, the original partners had really split and we were on our own. And my dad was the builder of Greenwood. Like, so each, what made Greenwood so great was that Albert, you know, was a rainmaker. Albert Lightner was a real rainmaker and he focused you know, incredible business person. My uncle was, uh, you know, in the planning and he, he was brilliant. He was very involved in, in finding sites. He was in very involved in planning and, you know, bringing in partnerships. And my dad was the builder. So they worked well together. You know, they kept it together. They worked well together. And then when we split, we, our company was based on construction or, you know, we were a, really a construction company. So we, we weren't developers, we were builders. And so that's how we were done. And then, you know, you, you know, and we, Sort of, you know, it was tough being a builder, right? Because you're completely dependent upon the economy, you know? So if there was no building, there was no income, right? So we sort of transformed into a full development company. And, you know, in that way that, you know, when times were slowed down, you would have your own income. You would have income producing properties. We really were based on construction income and, you know, we had a big construction department. And we saw that, you know, this, it was just very hard, you know, and construction was becoming a commodity. And, you know, you could, you had your own pick of many, many builders. My dad, you know, I'm obviously biased, but he was an incredible builder. I mean, it's amazing what he did. He was, you know, a young guy and he had to figure out how to build 8,000 units. You know, there was trades and he was a labor negotiator. You know, I think he was, he's very good at it. He, you know, they were, there used to be rotating strikes and, you know, that would slow down the industry. And he was very involved in keeping labor together and keeping it going. He had a wonderful reputation doing that. And uh, he's highly respected. You know, that was always great for us. My dad had a wonder. He was always, you know, I know it's cliche, but he was truly a handshake person. He was a very fine, you know, very fine man. And that helped us a lot. You know, that helped us a lot. That's, that's really part of our culture is stemming from the way our father was. The word is my bond, which yeah. Yeah. I know is yeah. not, uh, 
people at handshake deals do happen now for sure, but I know they don't happen yeah. the way they used to, yeah. which is uh, yeah. you know good for lawyers, I guess. Uh, bad <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. A lot of uh, yeah. a lot of glass and steel towers with a lot of people there. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That handshake uh, got a little more complicated, but it, there was a lot of that, you know. And, and still, you know, they're listen. That still, you know, like there's good partnerships, there's bad partnerships. And, you know, we always like to have great partnerships. You know, we like to enjoy the partnerships. You know, I, I, we always find when a project is forced to look at the partnership, you're wasting your time, right? You know, and say, you know, you're supposed to do that as opposed to everybody just, you just, you know, let's just get it done and let's work together and let's, it's kind of, let's not worry about any of that stuff, right? So, so um, yeah. With the original partnership split, was it just differing priorities that drove that or or am I bringing up uncomfortable family history or what no, drove that no, decision? No, that no, it was, uh, it was in, in 77, there was, you know, a rollover butterfly. You guys would know better about this stuff, all the financing. There was, there was opportunities to split. And on our other partner's side, they had their reasons for doing it. Honest to goodness, you know, apartments were done, right? And we were apartment builders and they were done. Rent control really, uh, you know, uh, it really slowed that industry down to, you know, you an absolute standstill. So, and that was the basis of the relationship. And there's a fantastic relationship to this day. We, you know, we have a, we with our cousins and with the Latner family, we all enjoy seeing each other, you know, and hearing what's doing. Yeah. So Kevin, what was the transition then? You went from builders to not being able to build by virtue of just the economics, but you didn't sit still, right? And yeah. so I, you, so you, you, were, kind of, you mentioned you were kind of getting involved at this point in time. So, I mean, you started acquiring other buildings. I mean, you had capital to deploy. What was the... Well, I mean, really what happened in those days when we went on our own, we were builders, right? We were builders. And then we started to do joint ventures with developers and we were that we would build and they would do it. And there was some nice relationships. So it was, it was nothing. There was no, it could be office. It could be a condominium in those days. It could be retail. We were still building for hospitals. We were doing a lot of construction work. So we were doing really what came along, what, you know, came our way. That was how we went through the, you know, 80s, you know, in the 80s, 90s. And then like every other developer, we got the heck beat out of us with that recession. You know, listen, you went through the 80s with 20, 21% interest rates. And then you went to the next recession. That was, you know, there were reasons for the next recession. So I don't think the banks like real estate anymore. So there were different, there, you know, it really slowed down. You know, you got really hurt badly in those days, right? So you went up and you went down and stuff. And then I would say, you know, I would say that in the, I can't tell you the exact time, but we really started to focus in on, you know, on our knitting, you know, and really looked at apartments and, you know, we started to acquire apartments. This came later though. I mean, this really, really came later, but we started to really focus in on, on the acquisition of apartments, the repositioning. We always felt that no matter what, um, you could do a better job, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, any managers are lesser, you know, or better, but we always felt that if you could buy apartment buildings, you could always manage better. You could always do something to manage better and you could always improve and stuff. And that was a big part of it. And we did start to acquire apartment buildings and we really started to focus in, you know, we focused in on apartments and that was, that's how we met you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely we, we are going to end off this discussion talking about one of, you know, your better wins. I know you've had a lot of wins in your career, but yeah. uh, this particular, but just if we're following the chronology, was there any real, you know, surge points as you grew your real estate portfolio, you know, what periods of time were better than others for rapidly growing to, uh, are you 10,000 units now? Am I correct in that? Well, we managed 25,000. And then we own Eeks probably about five or 6,000. And we have 
we have another about six thousand units sort of coming up, right? But I love uh, that. I love that. So you went. You were builders, partnered with developers, became you know acquirers and owners to a property management company, and now you're going back to your roots. Yeah, maybe just talk, we, maybe just talk that through a little bit as we kind of bring our chronology current. So yes, you know we really we always managed. We always understood property management. We knew we you know we were all across the province, you know, in Quebec, and we always managed. So we always understood apartments. We understood them and we built apartments. So we, you know, my brother was active. He was a builder and uh, we had a great builder that worked directly with my dad. And so we knew how to build apartments and we knew how to manage apartments and we knew everything about the culture of apartments. So really it was, it was, you know, it made sense to start to focus. And so we bought and we repositioned and then we started to build new because really, you know, the pressure of uh, decompressing cap rates, whatever you want to call them, you're almost ending up with a new build at the same cap rate that you would uh, build new for, right? Even though construction costs are skyrocketing, but you could still, it still made sense, right? And so we made a conscious decision to build up our planning division and build up our construction division and marketing and to start to look for, you know, opportunities on sites and stuff, right? So that's where we are today. But I, I think, you know, I, I guess we can go back to one of the acquisitions that you guys were really intimately involved with that really I think helped us a lot was the chalk farm acquisition. And so there was two stories, you know, there was two stories about First National here. You guys are my bankers, so. Yeah, wait, no, let me, Kevin, let me set the- Don't look the like phone. I'm like, yeah. Hold on, let me, let me just, so that for listeners that appreciate, I mean, the relationship between First National and Greenwood go way back, but I think- We'll say you're one of our closest clients and you'll probably say we're one of your closest partners. Let's just call it partners across the board and there's the mutual benefit. So maybe just talk through. And I'm going to say this with a grin on my face for those that are listening. Please feel free to talk about how great First National is throughout the next 10 minutes. (laughs) Go right ahead. I'm so so frightened right now. I, uh, you guys, (laughs) you know. No, we um, we were telling you, you know, as we were discussing earlier, I guess we had a property in Montreal and we had, a, you know, again, like, like every developer, you know, we have the most complicated covenant known to, you know, out there. And anyways, we kept, you know, we had a, one of the major banks uh, trying to figure out our covenant and lend on this property. And, you know, and they were quite bureaucratic and they would couldn't figure it out. And then, you know, a month later, they call us up and say, okay, you know, where are we? So, you know, like, can you send us documentation? And they go, they'd start asking us the same questions about our covenant. And this kept going on and our accountant, you know, who's sort of an impressive accountant at the time, he lost it. <laughs> he, he lost his mind and, you know, and told a guy like, oh, there's something wrong with you. How do you not get this? And he was less, you know, a little more unpleasant than that. And I had met Rob Fleet a while at a, I think it was a Starbucks or second cup at Eglinton. And he was telling us what they did and stuff. And then, you know, and then I told Rob, we're working with somebody, but if things changed, you know, and Rob was a total gentleman and said like, okay, hey, listen, we're here. Just wanted to let you know that we're here. So finally we, you know, after we, after our accountant sort of got frustrated, I said, you know, I'm going to call Rob Fleet, right? I'm going to call Robbie Fleet. And anyway, so then uh, the next thing I know, like that afternoon, it was like every step you ever needed to get a mortgage, you know? And, and it was like two different worlds. It was like sort of early Moscow to, to downtown New York, the way, you, you know, the move. They were, I've never seen service like that. They, everything, they made every, like, any question that needs to be answered. Like they said, this is how you do it. That's how you do it. Like, it was just like unbelievable. Like we were not used to that. So, so that this was, was like, this was, this was CMAC financing, right? To be clear. Yeah, absolutely. This is CMAC financing. 
So anyway, so that was the beginning of our relationship with First National. You guys got a winery. I think that was huge. <laughs> that's the only reason. The only reason we have clients, Kevin. No, no, that's no, the no, reason. no. The concert, and you have the concert. Okay, like that's not just at the concert. So yeah, uh, you know, and I don't see any banks having wineries. So that was really the beginning of our relationship. And, and you know, I, I sound like I'm promoting, you know, on your marketing team, but just I keep mean, going. Don't stop. Yeah. Just keep going. <laughs> it was a, it was a truly different world. It was it was pleasure, and the culture of First National is very very down to earth. And the guys we work with are awesome. We have a lot of fun together. And so, yeah, so that was the beginning. And we sort of worked together. We worked very, very closely together on financing. And then we had a, we had an acquisition at Chalk Farm, which was, uh, which, so Chalk Farm was uh, 1,200 units. And in those days, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but, you know, people sort of stayed away from that product, right? Yeah, Kevin, can you just describe, again, we, we're a national listener base. So just describe the neighborhood. So, and the, the, maybe the quality and the, the style of the building at the time well, that you guys were so entering. We, and, and maybe even just talk about the bidding process. Like, yeah, just, I know for let's sure. Let's go through so, the whole story. Yeah, Who owned no, it before? So, what was it like before you guys took over? So Chalk Farm, as it was known, was like Toronto Star's favorite, you know, center spread. Like, you know, they, they just, they would report on it, all the problems that they had there. Yeah, they at the corner the of Jane and Finch. At the corner of Jane well, and Jane Finch. Finch so it was Jane and Finch, too, that we managed as well. And we managed uh, Chalk Farm. So we had done a lot of work and we did a lot of work revitalizing Jane and Finch. So we were quite confident walking into Jane and Wilson that we could revitalize Chalk Farm. And we knew that. And we got in there. We were managing it. We truly turned it around. And it was rough. I mean, it had its problems. But realistically, when you get into these assets, 2 or 3% of a building ruin it for some pretty awesome people. And we knew that. So, you know, if we could sort of get that under control, we could turn that building. And then again, we had an option to buy it. And that was the big thing. And again, the banks, you know, like, People weren't racing to finance that type of product in those days. You know, it was, and I'm talking about 2014, 2015. It's not that long ago, but they really didn't have an appetite to finance those assets. And so I was talking to, again, Robbie Fleet at a, a golf tournament. And I was sort of saying, you know, you got to finance this thing. This thing's going to be great. And, and I started to whine a little bit saying like, oh my goodness, if they don't find it you know we don't get financing it's going to revert back it's going to go back to the way it was kids aren't going to go to school you'll see there'll be drugs there'll be you know murders like you you know i was getting all mad saying uh, you know and using a couple of your expletives here and there that this has to be financed but well, finance it's just the worst thing explain how many units so, it was so, in the size Kevin. like it was well, it's, it's, it's yeah well it's building. four buildings yeah it's 13 acres 1200 units four buildings it's it, it's big it's a big community and that neighborhood at risk and stigma stigmatized because of those buildings. So if you if you get those buildings under control, get kids back in school and get, you know, and help and bring in social programming, that neighborhood will jump up. And that's what we felt. And we were doing that. So and so we were here, we were doing that and we were you know, we then getting financing was tough. So I was saying to Rob, you know, and I was lamenting, oh my, you know, sort of this has to get financed, this, this. And Robbie goes, you got to say that to CMC. I said, well, I can't say it to CMC because at that point I was at a golf tournament and, you know, I, I would say that my language wasn't the greatest when I was talking to Robbie. And that was really, really frustrated thinking that, oh, you know, this is crazy. You know, this is this neighborhood. If we don't get this neighborhood, a lot of, no one's going to do what we did. We had taken a neighborhood that had 70 police visits a month and turn it down to one or two police visits. And we got that information from the 31 division, right? And we got, when we started, we did social programming. We, we had Spider Jones is there helping children. Like we did so much work 
And I was sort of really frustrated thinking, oh my goodness, how can they not finance this? How can they be true Canadians and let this neighborhood go back to help being at risk and stuff? And I, and I was, you know, I was using bad language at the time. But Rock goes, you got to go in and tell CMHC that story. So anyways, I go in there and I, you know, told the story and I, you know, I was quite passionate and I was like, came back sort of quite insecure looking at Robbie going like, you know, was that okay? He goes, no, you did great, buddy. You did great. You said it like it was, you did great. And anyways, we got our financing and and that was a big part of us. That was a big part of what we did. Those, you know, those assets, you know, rents started to move in, in those days. And that was a big part of us because you got a lot of support from politicians. Politicians were fantastic. The mayor would always, Mayor Tory would come out. Even before he was mayor, he would come out and support us. And really good people got behind these programs because, you know, by doing what we're doing, we're, we're, we're stopping people from being incarcerated at $120,000 a month. We're stopping police visits. And, you know, we're bringing the cost downs all over here. And we're you know, all that money's that were going on is going into keeping kids in school, giving them food, giving them mentorship, playing sports with them, teaching them discipline, and and you know, anyhow, that was a big part of what we did. And yeah, uh, and Kevin, can you, you know, talk about Kevin? Can you talk about the cleanup and, and not cleanup, but just the transition that you went through to get that asset? to get sure. that apartment building and just to help sure. the community. I mean, I know there's school programs and sports programs, but even before that you were doing like baking hours with the mothers and playing country yep. music in the back alleyways. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you know everything. Holy sugar plum. So that's called SEPDEV, Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design. So if you have a problem with teenagers, you know, you're at a 7-Eleven and you have a problem with teenagers, you know, congregating in front of your place, you know, there's nothing you can do. Like it's legal to loiter, you know, outside. So what do you do? So a lot of these people would play country music <laughs> to disperse someone. That was a function of SEPDEV. So SEPDEV is basically, you know, making a building policeable. Right. You know, so police officers need to when they do their policing, they like to be in the cars and they like to get around because, you know, a police officer is not going to catch an 18 year old on foot unless the guy was a former track star. So that's how they would police. So we would make sure all of the views were clear. You know, you would remove unnecessary landscaping. You would make sure that doors are locked. You would make sure that the lighting was proper. Cameras were there. You would do a whole bunch of programming to make buildings safe, you know, and really bring the buildings back to the way they first were. And we knew that these buildings are filled with unbelievably great people. They're people that really care about you know their neighborhoods or children and everything like that. And they were penalized by having two or three percent of these people that were, you know, that were in the buildings and stuff like that. And a lot of these people didn't have proper keys. You know, like when we got there, I mean the vacancy was, you know, was probably 30%. And then the unknown vacancy was like people that kicked in doors and took it over and stuff. So you know, one of the things that, you know, you would do is you would change the locks <laughs> and that would certainly flush a lot of people out. Those were not pleasant conversations, but a lot of the people that, you know, that were causing the problems for other people, once they were gone, once the place was safe, then we would bring in the social programming. So you go from a position where you walk home, you know, quite nervous to coming home to, you would walk home to your home and you'd drop your kid off and they would get after school help. They would get a meal and they would get, um, you know, they would get someone that, that had their back. Right. This, you know, these social programs, you know, we were lucky enough to have leadership. We did this at Jane and Finch with Stephanie Payne and thousands upon thousands of kids, have, you know, went on to schools. They had good meals. Um, and we did the same thing at Jane Wilson with Spider. And these kids, these kids, you know, they felt like someone cared about. Them, right. So. So anyway, so these are. This was a great part of what we did, you know, and I have to say it goes back to our roots. Right. And giving back. And it's something that we love to do. And maybe, Kevin, talk about the things you're doing now. I mean, I, I know you're you know, obviously working with the 31 division, as you've mentioned, but 
you've got some sort of engagement with MLSE, uh, with the city of Toronto, like the different sports programs and breakfast programs, and just maybe just talk about the other things that you guys are working on. Yeah, you know, anything to help the the kids, you know, in any of these programs that we can work with, we would grant and we would, MLSD has helped us so many times, you know, they've gotten kids to basketball games. Unfortunately, a lot of these people have never gotten out of their, really gone anywhere. So like going to a movie, going to anywhere, going to a game is a really big step. So we have all sorts of programs. Food, unfortunately, um, is the number one. It all still comes down to food. And I remember at a meeting at Gina Finch, you know, I said to the executive director, wow, it's great. All these kids are hanging out. It's really cool. It's good to see these kids, you know. And, and she goes, no, they're here. They're hungry. So you sort of learn, you learn sort of the hardware that food is still number one. But keeping them in school, music is awesome. I remember at Jane and Finch, uh, when we were just started. So the second year we were at Jane and Finch, all these kids were sitting there, you know, uh, in their little school uniforms and legs crossed, you know, and all waiting to get Christmas presents, right? And it was quite beautiful. You know, Santa was up there and you know, this is Jane and Finch, right? So I go walking over there and uh, all of a sudden, Stephanie Payne, or executive goes, hey kids, Mr. Green is here. He's the chairman of San Romano Way Revitalization Association. Let's wish them a happy Hanukkah, right? So like you're sitting there, with kids from all over the world, you know, all these people waiting to get Christmas presents. And I walk through there and you hear these kids do it. So a lot of really, really wonderful moments, right? Like it's, it really is something to see that transformation. And I think here's another plug for First National. So you guys were always like the happy parents. So every time we would do something, we'd have an opening, we'd have a program, we'd do something. You, you know, you guys were always there, right? So uh, that's another part. That's how like our cultures really work together. They really, uh, you guys always spotted that and always supported it. You supported it financially, you know, you always help. I think our cultures align, Kevin, between what you guys are doing and what First National is trying to do. And for those listening, we didn't bring Kevin on just to promote First National, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Kevin, I absolutely commend you for, for what you're doing in these neighborhoods. You know, a lot of landlords won't go into these areas because of you know, the challenges that you faced and overcome. I mean, you've really exemplified, you know, your passion for it. It's clearly not just a, you know, business case decision to do this. This is something that you're passionate about. Are you continuing to operate in these areas, looking for new opportunities in these areas? You know, what's next for Greenwind in terms of, you know, helping the community? Well, I, you know, I, I think that what we do, we always felt like we're where people live, right? So people come there every day, you know, they live there and stuff. So we always felt that, wow, how can we just sit here and not help? And that was our philosophy. And the, you know, we worked, we had, a, and there's a lot of teams here. We worked very closely with IntelliGuard and 31 Division were just incredible. They, they were supportive. They taught us about SEPDEV and it was a really team effort. And I just think that, you know, we love to do that. We love to help directly in the communities that we serve. We're working with 31 Division on Make Your Future. This is getting high school kids that might not go to university, let them know they got jobs and and help them get jobs. You know, we had thousands of kids come in. This was founded by by Minister Tabulo and working with 31 Division, and they've been driving this. So these programs, I, I highly, you know, I just think it's a great thing for your company to get involved in these things. We love to do it, and we're going to continue to do it. And yeah, we appreciate, really appreciate the time together. That was a great conversation. We got to do it again. And yeah, I want to also, uh, I'll say also too, <laughs> here's a flag for Maury, but the founder, you know, one of the founders of First National believes in these processes too. He really wants to help with affordable housing and stuff. So I, we really, uh, we really mesh uh, Greenwood and First National and we love it. You guys took us fishing. That was great. 
<laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I, 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 almost cut you off on, uh, I, I almost cut you off on commending the founder of First National. So I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't do it, buddy. I, I, yeah. I, I got, you got to live with that. Yeah. Yeah. Up next, we do have the after show. But first, uh, Kevin, I want to thank you for your time today. You've been yeah. very generous with sharing you know, the decades yeah. of developing in Toronto. It was a great history lesson of valuations, you know, that many years ago and yeah. the, the various yeah. booms and bust cycles and the interplay of the economics of a developing this portfolio. And of course, you know, again, I want to congratulate you for everything you've done on Chalk Farm and other locations that are considered tougher and taking on challenges that other won't. Kevin, thanks a lot. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you guys. You guys are great. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks Kevin. Yeah, I really appreciate okay. your time. Thank you very much. All right. Up next is the after show. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I talk like idiots for about 15 minutes and hopefully give you some kind of insight into, I don't know, real estate or us being idiots. Life. I'm not really sure. Life. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is where it gets real. What a cool episode. I mean, you know, let us, let's qualify it because, I mean, Kevin said a lot of really, really nice things about First National and I said it during the show, but I, I'll say it again. Like we didn't bring him on to advertise First National. We'll have Jeremy Wedgbury on in a couple of months, who's our sort of our fearless leader. He'll advertise First National just, just well enough. We don't need clients of ours doing it. And Kevin did say it before we recorded and after we hit stop on the episode that he legitimately means it. And now I'm selling First National, but that relationship between us and them, it has been just fantastic. We do align, but the stuff that they're doing in certain communities around the city is just amazing. Like some of the stuff you hear them talking about for Chalk Farmer, Jane and Finch, and you mentioned it, it really is challenges and obstacles that a lot of landlords just are not willing to face. It's not just keeping your units full and making sure all the rents in by the third or the fourth of the month and clean the lobby. You know, there's real significant challenges. I mean, could you imagine the police being at your property 70 times a month? You know, that's mind boggling. And to get that down to three, that's a lot of hard work, a lot of hours put in. I don't think he liked my question about the country music, but I think that's just so interesting. They would literally play country music in the alleyways where there would be sort of a, you know, a congregation in, as he, as he referenced it for ultimately to help policing of the neighborhood. But I just, what a creative way to, to deal with sort of the challenges these neighborhoods present at times. Yeah. And, and also not, you're not just, you know, risking your time and the challenges, you're risking your money too. I mean, 1200 units is not going to be cheap. It's a lot of capital to put in, you know, in areas that are, are slow to turn around. And so, you know, I do commend him for, putting his money where his mouth is in terms yeah, of uh, I, it can't happen. I don't know what, I don't know ultimately what the final dollar figure was and I'm going off memory, but I think the purchase price of that 1200 units was around 90 million in 2015. So I mean, everybody can do the math. That's less than a hundred bucks a door in 2015, where I think assets certainly in parts of the city were trading at much larger than a hundred thousand dollars a unit. I should say before, before we move on, you know, Robert Fleet is an incredible man and a wonderful, wonderful originator at First National, but he's not the only originator. And so Adam, if you're reaching, if you're the landlord out there, you know, you can call Rob, call Rob, like do it, please. But call Adam too, and you can compare the two to decide who you want to do business with. <laughs> Thank you, Arian. I'm much too polite to toot that horn. So, uh, or, that or, or one of the other 35 originators that we have that are also <laughs> fantastic. Um, Adam may or may not be better than the rest. I don't know. I can't, I can't <laughs> <Yeah>. say. 
<laughs> I, uh, while, while we were on break in between the main part of the show and the after show, I broke out my handy, the 10B2 financial calculator that most of our audience is probably familiar with. So I had to do the math on buying units at $3,500 a door in the mid-60s, and now they're worth $400 a door. And Aaron, in your head, what do you think that uh, annualized return is over that time frame? What do you think well, it is to get to It's, it's got to be over 1,000% just <laughs> thinking out loud, right? So I annualized over that time. It averages out to 8.99%, which is a fantastic return for that time oh, okay. frame. But it's not like Apple stock or you know or, or Warren Buffett returning twenty percent annually. It's eight point nine nine. It does highlight the time is kind to all investments, and apartments are no exception to that. But that is a very long investment ter- time horizon to maintain a, a just shy of nine percent return uh, so on appreciation, my- ignoring ignoring of course the cash flow and inflation. Inflation leverage return. There's a few things we're forgetting in that calculation, but if what you can. <laughs> what expense ratio did you use, Adam? Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't go that deep. I didn't go that deep into it. Yeah, I guess moral of the story is buy units in 1965. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody, you heard it here first. Buy real estate back in the 60s. <laughs> but that being said, though, there is that proverb. I'm going to make sure I get this right. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today, meaning maybe 2020 is a great year to buy real estate as well. And, uh, you know, your grandkids will be thanking you because you paid only $400,000 a door for units that are now, you know, $10 million a door in uh, the year 2080. Hey, Adam, how many units do you own? The one that I live in. <laughs> and, uh, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my portfolio is not what it should be if I, uh, I'm trying to leave a legacy. Yeah, the logic we're losing there is that, you know, back in the 60s, the average income was $25,000. So you could literally just take an annual salary and buy five units versus today, you got to make $2 million a year in order to buy five units and one annual salary. It's a little bit different. Anyway, we're getting down a rabbit hole that neither of us want to go down. Yeah. <laughs> You One know, other thing you mentioned, I think I've even mentioned it before on this after show, he, he mentioned that he had a strong sports background and not necessarily a strong academic background. And I think I've mentioned it in the show before, maybe not. There is a strong correlation for people that were performed well in athletics who end up in commercial real estate. And my ongoing theory is that competition is you know lifeblood of you know what we do and you don't need a, a PhD in physics in order to enter the arena and so that's why you do have a lot of source people in this career where you know aggressiveness and competition and personal skills really really do pay off so yeah I've, I've noticed it for years the tight correlation like Aaron of course for those who don't know does have an athletic background he was a very competitive figure skater before his knees said no more so no, you'd no, be no, 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 no. It, was, it was a finger painter not figure yeah. skater finger <laughs> painter that's right yes I must have yeah, but the theory holds true. You know, yeah, Kevin was Kevin was surprisingly proud that he graduated university. <laughs> and for those that don't know, I, I like I think our founder. I don't think Maury ever even finished high school. And, there, and I think I mean I'm I'm not good at this stuff, but I'm sure there are lots and lots of real estate executives that probably have a similar path, right? Where you just didn't need to, you didn't really need to, like you said, get your physics degree or get your PhD to be successful in this industry. You really just needed. I think you needed a tolerance for risk. You know, people have been asking me about how are you doing over the, uh, during COVID? How's the business going, right? What's going on in your industry? And I always start saying, you know, real estate owners 
have a knack for risk. And so as soon as things get sour, I think the people that are property owners typically go, okay, how can I take advantage? How, where can I get myself in a situation to profit and be successful? So, you know, Adam can attest to this. First National has been booming over the last couple of months simply because a lot of our clients are saying, I need to leverage up. I need to get myself as liquid as possible so that when time is right, I can jump on the next acquisition. Yeah, I mean, you look at the, the purchase histories of a lot of successful people, you know, they sat on their hands when things were all rainbows and they just buy when properties are in distress because they know they can handle the risk. They'll sleep well at night regardless. And, you know, over time, as we started off the after show by commenting on, time is very kind of real estate. And if we're 10 year, 20 year horizon of ownership, you know, two year downturns don't matter as much. And that's a very profitable strategy for a lot of people. You know, you, you'll see groups. I'm sure, you know, I purchased documents now who've not been on active at all the last couple of years just because the markets were a little too frosty and just, you know, like just disciplined buyers who won't buy when you're having to outbid everybody with the biggest checkbook. Yeah, we'll end it on this. And this is kind of a curious comment, but I, I ran into a, a client of ours who who historically has been very, very aggressive and a good friend of mine. So, so he was being, I think, probably pretty transparent and said, you know, I've always been aggressive my entire career and now I'm sitting on my hands. <laughs> so I, I guess, I mean, I'm just, I'm playing devil's advocate that I think there are always those guys that historically have been that entity or that person to look for the opportunity. And, and there are some people reading their tea leaves right now or looking into their crystal ball or whatever the metaphor is saying, I think I'm just going to wait. I think right now I'm just going to wait, which is curious. Yeah, the two very different investment theses. It's I can see both sides of the coin, and you know both groups make money and they operate properly. Before we do go, I want to make one more comment for anybody who didn't get the context of the comment about wineries. Our founder, Maury Taw, or our co-founder, Maury Taws, is a wine enthusiast, to put it mildly, and does own two wineries here in Ontario. And that's what Kevin was alluding to as the reason he does business with us because it's fun to go visit the winery. I assume it's more than that. He did say that, but it is a nice perk. But well, uh, that, that is the context. I'll, I mean, I'll add it. I mean, Kevin and I ran into each other at the winery on Tuesday for a Jim Cuddy event, which was fantastic. And so that, I think that's where he was coming from. Anyways, I want to make sure everybody understood what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Aaron, is that it for the after show? I think so. Yeah. Are we, okay. are we still idiots? I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> working on it work in progress <laughs> alright thanks everybody for listening talk to you soon thank you for listening to the CRE podcast the information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing professional accounting or legal advice First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252